Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Game changers, hey? It's hardly rocket science, or is it? Two professors and an art teacher. (laughs) Or perhaps a highly, highly, highly interesting and qualified example of a global citizen who spends his time thinking about stuff beyond our world and therefore helps us to make sense of what is in our world. Alan Duffy is a professor at Swinburne University. He's a director of Space Technology and Industry Institute. He's the lead scientist of RIOz, the CEO and founder of Endotech. He's a serious, serious player in the world of science and in science education in Australia. I'm so excited that we get the chance to chat with him today. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 8 sponsor? Edapt Education brings together all your student data into one platform. Improve the growth and well-being of all students in your school. Edapt is offering their learner profile and school data platform free for a term for the first time exclusive to you, our Game Changers listeners. Simply visit edapt.education forward slash Game Changers. That's edapt.education forward slash Game Changers. Let's go. Bill, it is wonderful to be with you again. And uh and thank you for recognising the value of the arts in that introduction, my friend. Uh, no, no doubt, uh, you know, the humanity of the arts is probably what makes the world go round. And what a treat that we have today to have two professors uh, in, in, in it. I don't know how you're going to be able to cope, Phil, with the competition in the conversation. Look, you know, I'm just going to draw on my ancient history background. You know, Plato mm-hmm. once said that astronomy compels the soul to look upward and leads oh. us from this world to another. That's unlike Fitzroy, of course, where you're compelled to go from one soy cappuccino to an almond milk latte. Well, you know, I think it's really important that you're sharing with, I guess, your aspirations in life. It's really very generous of you, Phil. Thank you very much. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest that we have on on this. I'm really super excited that that Alan Duffy has agreed to be part of this particular series, A Life of Purpose. Alan, we're going to start with the very first question. It's a question that we ask all of our guests. Tell us about your story and how you've gotten to where you are today. All right. My, my story is one of a random walk, to use a scientific term. I, in hindsight, you can look back and see order and purpose and intent, but I can assure you that there was never anything of the sort. There was always a decision point, a decision was made uh, that felt right at the time, and we can talk a bit more about those decision points, but in a nutshell, I, I grew up in, in Northern Ireland. Uh, I was always fascinated by the world around me. I enjoyed uh, the night sky, but I was also equally curious about everything else that I could see as well. And reading of uh, science books in particular and, and science fiction and, and experiencing the likes of Star Trek and, and having all of these kinds of, of early influences led me to, to science, study physics at university, take on an opportunity to study a PhD 
in uh, the University of Manchester. And then uh, a job opportunity came at the end of my PhD to aid in the, uh, the optimization of, of a telescope uh, that had not yet been built, uh, but how could we have it see the universe better? And for that, you create simulated universes, baby universes on supercomputers. And that is, that's what my PhD was, was all about. And uh, use that simulated universe and test out different designs, uh, optimizations for the telescope. Uh, well, anyways, I somehow I happen to have the perfect experience for a role in Perth, WA, which I can tell you right now, I had never heard of until the moment <laughs> the job advert arrived. I had no idea where that place was. Uh, that was back in 2009, and, and really, I've never looked back since. Uh, a few short years later, I find myself in Fitzroy, Adriano, having not a soy cat, but uh, <laughs> at least a very interesting experience living there for a year or two. And then, uh, in any case, I fell in love with Melbourne, weather aside, other challenges aside, and uh, the opportunities just continued to come my way. And as I say, each decision point was it felt like there was a natural decision was being made, but very much without strategic forethought. But perhaps in hindsight, I've, I've ended up exactly where I always wanted to be. I'm going to, I'm just going to extend this questioning a little bit to dig a little bit deeper, particularly around the moment, the decision. And I'm going to reference Captain Picard here in a quote, considering you mentioned Star Trek. <laughs> very good. Yes. Things are only impossible until they're not. Hmm. When did you realize looking up in that night sky, when was that moment, that decision, that things are only impossible until they're not? For me, there was a, there was a singular moment, a realisation of that one could have a career in astronomy and cosmology, that such a role existed. You, you must understand I'd never had any opportunity growing up to be exposed even to, to university at that point. My, my, uh, my mum actually went back to university after she'd, ha she'd had me and my brother, uh, as a mature age student, which was, you know, was incredibly proud of her for doing that. But there was a, a book by Stephen Hawking, A Brief History of Time. And in it, he describes the universe, the, the idea of black holes, dark matter, the fact there was a field of study called cosmology, and that you could be a cosmologist, you could be an astronomer studying the heavens. And Looking back, that's the moment I realized there was something to even aim for, because really until that moment, I didn't know that job existed. Alan, I'm really interested in this notion of being guided by purpose rather than a plan. Um, my colleague, the notorious OG ADP, De Prado here, he's, he's notorious for, for not having a plan for his life. Mm -hmm. He's got a sense of his mission and a sense of his purpose and, and then responds to the needs as, as they emerge and mm -hmm. looks ahead to see where things go. But that, that idea of being guided through your life by a sense of what you're meant to be doing, it's an interesting way to navigate through a lifetime. It's probably an interesting way to navigate through space as well, too. You'd probably bump into a few asteroids along the way if you did that. How do you know when an opportunity is right? How, how do you know? I mean, the Perth WA thing is, is an example where there, there's, a, there's a neat fit. But what, what if there isn't a neat fit? What do you use to help guide you to make these sorts of decisions? It's so tough and it's, and you can never have the counterfactual, right? You, you can't see how this would have turned out another way. You don't get the, the sliding door. So there's always a fear that you've made the wrong choice. Uh, and I think that's where people stick to a plan and it gives them comfort that at least if it turned out wrong, they, you know, they stuck to their plan and, and that somehow gives a, 
Um, of confidence. I, but I think that that's missing the deep unconscious insight that comes from this purpose-led life that one can have confidence in a decision for, for reasons that, by the way, might be completely unjustified or completely unknown. You could just feel that something is right. You know instinctively it's a huge risk, but it feels like that's a risk that is worth taking. Uh, there's a role. I'll take a specific example. I, I went from University of Melbourne uh, to Swinburne University of Technology. It was, I was substituting a 100% research uh, uh, fellowship, uh, met, you know, many years left on that, that fellowship. That's, that's it. That's the goal. I mean, that's what you want, right? You're just all your time devoted to research. Well, how could you want anything more? Uh, and Melbourne's a wonderful institute, fantastic colleagues uh, within that research group for a, a self-described pilot uh, role at Swinburne, which was 50% research, and less time to research, but I was being given 50% of my time to do communication engagement, that I could see however I saw fit or best to use that time to advance the, the goals, the, the you know, reasonably opaque nebulous KPIs associated with that to just tell more people about science, get more people interested about science. It resonated so deeply with the core mission that I had that perhaps I didn't even know how strong I felt until a role like that was stated to me that I that I leapt at this. It was an insane decision, by the way. <laughs> like I would not recommend yeah, I that. But I don't. I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I don't think that that that's the case because, as you said, you, you felt as though you were meant to do it. I mean, there's a very dear friend of mine and dear colleague and and uh, a wonderful client of ours, um, Dr. Ian Lambert, who's principal principal of the Scots College in Sydney. And he always talks about the importance of leading from the core of your being. The details, you know, you can have something that feels right in the details, but, you know, if it, if it doesn't sit well with what's inside you, with the sort of inchoate matter that's inside you, then, um, then you're going to have problems uh, along the way, I think. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role as a professor of astrophysics and, uh, and the lead of space tech applications at Swinburne University? It just sounds like uh, the best, the best possible job for somebody interested in space. Yeah, no, it it really is. So, so the 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 role uh, at Swinburne has evolved as I've grown as a as a as a person, professional, as a as a leader, and taken on more responsibilities. And now it's really come together in this this new space technology and industry institute. And so the the professor of astrophysics that keeps me busy with searching for dark matter. That is a a deep fundamental question that. I referenced even back in the Stephen Hawking book. So for over, geez, 20 or 25 years? No, I can't be that. Oh my God, it's that long. Oh God. <laughs> a quarter of a century, I've wanted to know what that thing is. Okay. So, so yeah, we're, and I, I may, maybe another 25 years and we still won't have found it. It's, it's nature may be unkind, but that's, uh, that's science. Um, so along with the, the, the research aspects, I, I have the directorship of the Institute, which is an, external facing industry aligned entity where we try to resolve companies or communities challenges here on earth through the application of space and in particular the research excellence across the university so then i go and find the people who can solve the problems that our potential collaborations outside are having now that's a for someone like me who is fascinated by so much of the world but deeply passionate about space it really is the, the perfect uh, role. And I think it's uh, it's something I that didn't exist, again, back when I was uh, uh, getting started at, at Swinburne. 
it didn't exist nationally. And certainly, no, this is something I feel very fortunate to have presented to me. But it was actually in the conversation in our in our um, last couple of questions, we I've realized something that the plan is important so much as you with foresight plan out a way to give yourself the most opportunity, most potential to then go with your gut. Does that make sense? So, so you, you undertake a, a degree as I did, uh, you undertake a PhD in, in, uh, with a specialism in cosmology, such that when an opportunity arose to follow that path deeper into cosmology, to do the, the kind of actions or activities that, that Hawking had inspired a very, very young me to think about, I was actually able to take up that opportunity and go with my gut. And, and so, so too, with doing some communication training, TV training earlier in my career, when I was based still at University of Melbourne, prepared me for the opportunity that Swinburne presented. I was able to, never planning to the level of detail, oh, I should end up with this directorship in, in a space institute that doesn't exist at this point. I should learn a lot about how leadership or how uh, contracts or IP should be uh, uh, negotiated or considered. You do these things because they seem useful in an uncertain, ambiguous future, such that when the opportunity presents itself, you really can grab it and you have a good chance of actually getting that opportunity over the line. And I think, so in that way, go with your gut, but don't be blind to the need to prepare, I think is, a, is a, something I've realized in our discussion. <laughs> is maybe yeah, one well, I, I, think, I, I think it was... Um... I'm pretty sure it was uh, von Bulow who said that, uh, you know, the first casualty of war is the plan, but you're still going to make the plan, don't you? Because if you don't plan, you, it's, yeah. it's, 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 diffi it's difficult to get there along the way. And I, and I, and I know my colleague, De Prado, will say that he doesn't have a plan, but he's he's meticulous in his preparation, including all of his preparation for game changes, which is great because he does a whole bunch of research on things. So we're going to talk about muons in a second, which um, I'm right. excited to do. <laughs> But before we do that, you were talking about there about the, the notion of how you prepare for an uncertain future and how you lead into an uncertain future. All around the world over the past few years and probably for the past 30, 40, 50 years, we've been thinking pretty seriously about colonisation. We've been th thinking pretty seriously about decolonisation and decolonising learning all over the world. And we understand that so much of the learning that's taken place around the world has occurred within a context of conquest of people by other people around mm -hmm. there. We're on the verge of doing stuff in space and we have an opportunity now as we enter into this to explore other worlds and not make the same sorts of mistakes that we did when some of us went off exploring our own world around, mm -hmm. uh, around there. I'm interested in the notion of responsible citizenry in yeah. the context of space, you might want to link it to muons as well. So I'm going to let you explain what muons are because you're going to do a much better job of it to me. But thinking about muons, thinking about the way we explore space, thinking about responsible citizenry and, and environmental stewardship beyond our own planet. Can you walk us through some of your thinking in that respect? Yeah, absolutely. I actually, th these are the kinds of, of deep questions that motivate students, by the way, and, and something about planning for an ambiguous future and, and lesson planning, even building in potential projects that provide and empower our students for that kind of a future. I'm a big believer in problem-based learning where you set a real problem that you as the teacher don't know the answer to and you work together. And one of those kinds of meaty problems is the future of humanity in space and in a shorter term in our interactions 
with the MOOC. Uh, there are uh, numerous entities looking to uh, use the moon, uh, use the moon as a uh, refueling, resupplying uh, uh, base of operations. Uh, the water that exists on the moon can be split into hydrogen oxygen. That's literal rocket fuel, of course, uh, that then powers our, our further exploration of space. Uh, it could refuel satellites at industry potentially worth billions, uh, allowing those, those satellites to orbit for longer. Uh, and of course, it's, it's needed for uh, humans to decrease the cost of long-duration missions, for example, to Mars. So the moon is everything. Uh, the opportunity to mine it for resources is something that uh, within the institute, we have about nine PhDs co-funded mostly with industry or with uh, the CSIRO to explore. Some of those PhDs are concerned about sustainability of such activities. So we are not just solving the technical challenges. We are trying to create sustainable, uh, responsible uh, solutions as well. So building in you know, uh, recycling or sustainability within that new economy. Uh, so we learn from the mistakes of the past. We don't uh, take up our linear consumption patterns, for example, where you take raw materials, you create the thing, you throw the thing out next. <laughs> and we continue with such rapacious uh, appetites. We, we must do better. We have to do better. The, the, the challenges of space are such that we are forced to have a closed cycle, hence a circular economy. Uh, it's, it's extremely expensive to bring in new materials. So I hope at least that we can do better as we explore beyond the earth. And I think we must do better. The moon is a, a heritage to us all. And in particular uh, here in Australia with the indigenous uh, communities who have a, a strong, deep lasting uh, connection to uh, the land and sky. And the moon is a, a primary player in a number of those beliefs and I think that we have, as Australians, a responsibility to acknowledge and do more than just acknowledge, but safeguard that, that heritage. So Australia has itself a, an interesting opportunity. We are both signatories to the Moon Treaty that prevents the uh, use of the Moon by any one country for its own benefit. It is, there's a shared intent to that. It's very much about the sharing of the benefits for all humanity. And, and, and that really gets the stewardship point doesn't it? Mm. That we need to approach this with a, a different understanding about sharing, really, don't we? And about conserving. And conserving is not about stopping progress. It's about thinking about what's important and how you carry that forward together for the benefit of all. Well, it certainly should be, but it's not exclusively that. So, so there are certainly ways in which private companies can go and gain resources of the moon for their own uh, needs. And indeed, this is partly what the NASA Artemis Accords, so the return to the moon and beyond that uh, Australia is, is also a signatory of, uh, intends to use these kinds of, of resources. So it's called in situ resource utilization. So Australia, how does Australia balance this? It's signed up to one treaty that says, let's safeguard the moon, let's use its resources for all. And another, the NASA Artemis Accords, which specifically encourages the use of those resources to propel this particular mission. I think that Australia can see this as a moment in time to demonstrate what best governance, what best practice looks like, because we have to live up to both obligations. And uh, certainly within my own institute, we're trying to do our bit by ensuring that the solutions we're proposing are sustainable, that they are uh, built with the broader uh, system in mind, not just about maximizing the output of 
oxygen, for example, from the regolith, we want to do more than just, just that simple consideration. We want to ensure that we're doing something that's not going to cause damage as well. I love the way in which the thinking is being revealed here, which is not just about a specific branch of science, but also its applicability to the whole of what it is that we do. We're going to go from the moon to muons now. Um, uh, you're the founder of M-Detect. It's a, a leading muon technology company. Tell us what muons are and talk to us about how your work with muons is having an impact on the purpose of environmental stewardship. Absolutely. I loved your your uh, segue with the, the alliteration. That was, that was nice, Phil. Yeah. Uh, so look, we have in, in our everyday life, a particle comes crashing in. Uh, in fact, there's a few hundred of them will come crashing in to your body each and every minute. This is perhaps a little alarming. These are feeding black holes, uh, exploding stars, particles from these most energetic events across the universe have come and traveled and, and come crashing into our, our, our bodies and indeed the entire surface. These are muons. They are the heavy cousins of electrons and they're highly penetrating. They go through your body. In fact, they go through hundreds of meters of rock before finally stopping, such as their energy. That constant bombardment is an interesting opportunity because essentially it's akin to an X-ray scan. So if you're able to take a detector uh, beneath an area of interest, you can use these naturally occurring muons to take an X-ray-like scan of the material between you and, and the, the surface and the sky. This isn't a new idea. There was, for many decades, it's been uh, considered that such muons can uh, allow mineral exploration, for example, to happen more cheaply, more easily, more effectively. Uh, what's different with MDetect and was the subject of the spin out from Swinburne, the research and, uh, that the team, uh, including Shanti Krishnan and Craig Webster, undertook, and several of our patents in that work, was miniaturizing the detector and making it robust and, and making it essentially something that is, is about uh, 20 centimeters across all up. And uh, you can drop it on the ground. The thing can go under quite literally, a, a, you know, be carried to the bottom of a mine, placed in a way you walk, and then it takes the scan. What makes this, I think, so exciting from a, an environmental sustainability approach is, yes, the mineral exploration is one opportunity, and that's, that is an interesting opportunity, in particular, any way we can more easily identify minerals that will be required in the new renewable future. We need these metals to, to uh, create the renewable economy, solar panels, uh, wind turbines, and the, as well as, of course, the batteries and the like. That's an opportunity. One opportunity that particularly excites me, though, is a novel use case for this kind of a technology. And that, are, that is the use of uh, 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 tailings storage facilities. So a huge amount of material is taken from a mine site, is processed, and then it has to be placed somewhere. Typically, it's placed in absolutely just gigantic uh, uh, lakes, artificial lakes with large dam walls essentially constructed. The, the, you have to see these things to, to understand the scale of them. They're really quite, quite beyond compare. Trying to monitor the dam to ensure it doesn't break and, and breach and cause incredible environmental cost to lives and livelihoods as well as, as most recently, unfortunately, has been seen in Brazil. There's several incidents that just just appalling in scale. That is, for me, the most exciting opportunity with these muons. It is about allowing the passive, constant monitoring of the structural stability of these enormous artificial structures that you can spot a piping failure. So essentially, an, a, a large amount of the 
the wall is eroded away, you can spot that in advance and you can take remedial actions. You don't have to let it get to a stage where it poses a risk. That's of course great for the companies, but I think it's particularly important to recognize it's great for the country. We do not want these things to be breaking them. We want to have a solution that allows us to monitor them for decades, because that's the kind of level of commitment we're talking about. When we mine, the mine's operational life might be 20 years. We have to monitor this, these tailing storage facilities for much, much longer. And currently the technology available just is, is not doing the job, at least not cheap enough that it's, it's imaginable to do that into a longer term uh, future. So as we see more mining to power this renewable transition that we must do, we have to come up with solutions that get us to, to that point with less impact on the environment. We have to do this in a greener way. Mm -hmm. We have to do this in a safer way. And this is one little piece. Uh, I'm very excited about it. I'm very proud of it, but it's only one little piece, of course, uh, in using these muons to ensure that stability. And that's just one use case as many others. But I think it's important to realize that the new technologies, uh, new uses of perhaps even existing older ideas, uh, they're often made by the chance discussions or chance opportunities. It's th this particular use case was entirely a random chat that happened to occur after one meeting. And, you know, I, I, I'm not a geologist, right? I'm an astronomer. What do I know about telling storage facilities? I've never heard of them until uh, this, this conversation. And then over the last couple of years, we've realized, wow, we really can help here. Like this, this is important. <laughs> and these things have a horrendous failure rate. We can do something about that. And that- well, there's a massive ends. interrelatedness between everything that you're sharing, you know, uh, which is quite profound. I, I, I only wish, this is a political statement, I only wish our, our federal government would be open to the science uh, around climate and, and the environment. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you there, Alan, but I, I want to keep us moving in our conversation yes. here today. Uh, and I'm very conscious of time and your time. You create universes inside supercomputers to understand how galaxies like our Milky Way form and the nature of kind of new invisible type of matter that binds them together, dark matter. I did a bit of research there, by the way. <laughs> that was um, well said. <laughs> so, so I'm going to ask you probably the biggest question, and that is, why is there something rather than nothing? This is one of the most fundamental questions. Uh, we talk about the most one of the most famous equations of all time, in fact, mm -hmm. E equals mc squared. From energy, you can gain matter, but that's not quite true. You gain matter and you gain antimatter in equal quantities from that energy, because uh, you can go the other way. You can collide matter and antimatter together to recover the energy. We do this routinely in the Large Hadron Collider, for example, uh, on on tiny scales. The very very early universe had a lot of energy, and it created matter and it created antimatter and what we see around us today, what we do again and again, trillions of times a second in the Large Hadron Collider is to do the same experiment, but we see equal amounts of matter and antimatter. But for some reason, because we look around and there's clearly matter, there was an imbalance, a tiny, tiny imbalance, but then imbalance nonetheless. And we don't know why. One of those, and thankfully for us, of course, one of the, the things that there was a little more of than its anti-partner equivalent was, was dark matter. And this formed the gravitational backbone around which the galaxies could form and, and ultimately stars and then the planets around those and, of course, ourselves. One of these simulated universes that you can create, and uh, you do it once because it's fun, but uh, just to show, but you can wind the clock back right after the Big Bang and you say, okay, well, let's just imagine the imbalance was such that it was only the atoms that you and I, the stars, are made of, and uh, the dark matter didn't. 
survive that this little imbalance of material just just it was completely cancelled out by this anti-particle equivalent and now uh, we we just have a universe beginning with atoms let's see what happens and you spend a lot of supercomputer time running that universe forward and nothing forms there's just a very boring cloud of gas. In 13 billion years, you cannot get the structures we see around us to form. You need something to accelerate that. You need that gravitational backbone. You need this dark matter. But why is there dark matter and, and even atoms when we know in all the experiments we do on Earth that equal amounts of matter and antimatter are created and hence they should have collided and annihilated? We still don't know. That's actually one of the fundamental questions that we hope to resolve this century because well, we've been aware of it for a while, and we've been increasingly concerned about our inability to to explain that imbalance of why there is something rather than nothing. I love this conversation, Alan, because you know I, I think about the young people in our schools, you know, particularly in our primary schools, where play and wonder and awe and creativity is so in, intrinsically part of their being. You know, it, it's mm. it's it's part of their DNA. And, and our challenge, of course, in education is often we kind of knock those things out of them through, through a very prescribed, uh, standardised curriculum that, that has an endpoint of a score. What I'm hearing you so beautifully articulate to our audience and to Phil and I is, is an adult still playing in the space of wonder and awe. An adult who remains deeply infatuated, like many, many humans, about life beyond our earth and what that could mean for us. Captain Kirk said to go boldly where no man has gone before, right? Mm -hmm. When you look up in that night sky, where do you go? I love playing a game and, and you're 100% right. It, it's, I still play every, every day. Uh, I, get, I get to play with, with part of what I do. When I look at those stars, I, I imagine in this game, what's looking back or rather that something at that moment has also chanced and looked up at our star what, what our sun appears to be to them. I did a, an audible series where I, I, I had the privilege of speaking to the world's experts about the search for life beyond earth. Uh, a number of them are my friends and I got to sit down and really hammer the details. And the sheer number of us professionals and, and amateur astronomers and, and people completely independent of the search for life beyond earth who have done that same game astounded me. <laughs> the number of people who have looked up at a star and for the briefest moment in time, allowed themselves to imagine that something was looking back. I, I wonder how many of us have had that, that moment at least once in their lives. It is a, a profound, deep-seated quest that I, I have to see that answer, are we alone, definitively answered. Uh, I, I wonder just how hard that question will be in my lifetime to answer one way or the other. Well, you can't, you can't prove the negative, so we will always search. I think that that is guaranteed until we do find something and then we'll search harder for even more, I suspect. You know, Alan, listening to you exploring notions of curiosity and wonder, of playing, of, of, of asking the question, are we alone? This conversation, it fractalizes, you know, because we can bring it right down into the life of a student or we can take it up into our existence and our place in the, in, in the universe. I want to bring it down to the world of our student a single student to play you need to feel as though you belong and you need to feel as though to wonder if we are alone in the universe i sometimes think that we need to know that we're not alone 
here where we are right now. I might be wrong in that. How do we help young people to feel as though they belong in school or any other learning community and equip them to be in a place to ask such questions? Yeah. I had this moment, uh, I remember the excitement, in fact, when I, I went to university and it was almost perhaps in that first week and I met my new physics class and Manchester is massive. So there was 350 students who all wanted to know more about the universe around them, who, like me, cared about magnetism and wondered about radioactivity and wanted to learn more about the stars. The excitement I had when I find my tribe, when I found the people who, like me, cared about this thing, it was such a profound moment. And I want to encourage anyone who's listening who feels like they are isolated at this time in their learning, that your tribe exists. You will find them. It may take a little longer, and the pandemic certainly doesn't help but you will find them. Now, I think the ways and practical ways that people can make that search easier, there are obvious communities to start. If you're interested in astronomy, there are uh, the amateur societies all around the world in which passionate people, engaged people, uh, take telescopes and do do night tours and the like. If you're interested in other areas of, of science or even just esoteric topics, the internet is a wild and wonderful place and you can find that community there. I do think there's no substitute, however, for in-person interaction and shared learning opportunities uh, where you get to, to go out and explore, you get to discover. So I think anytime that you can sign up to community-based challenges or learning opportunities, you really must. It can be, inter- it can be intimidating. Of course it can. But the rewards are so great, be it a community learning opportunity or a, 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 you know, a, a clean drive or whatever the case may be within your local community, that can be empowering to find you're not alone. Talking of not alone, one of the issues that we've got in this country and we have in, in other countries is, is the number of women in science and the number of women, um, young women going into the, the study of science. Many of them, when they're at school, don't feel as though they have a place where they can study it. And it's, it's not part of their tribe. It's not part of the culture of their tribe. And then they find it difficult to head into the field. And I think sometimes we try to do funky, crazy things like, you know, weird and wild and wacky STEM projects. And every school that can afford it is throwing up a STEM building to, as if a building is going to, of itself, create a sense of belonging. How do we help more young women? find their tribe? How do we help more young women pursue the same sort of career um, that you're talking about there? All right. Well, obviously, I have the danger of three white men having this conversation, but <laughs> I do think that uh, by, by uh, firstly going to the, the Women in STEM ambassador, my, my good friend, Professor Lisa Harvey-Smith, the inaugural Women in STEM ambassador for Australia has done incredible work on this topic, as well as putting numbers behind the programs that work, because we, we so rarely track the success. We actually don't know in a quantitative sense, the efficacy of these programs. And you mentioned there's, there's been a number of initiatives. I think entirely anecdotally, and anecdote is not evidence, but we ran uh, the missions to the space station. Uh, so this is a program called the Swinburne uh, Youth Space Innovation Challenge, and it's now rolled nationally. We have six schools in this, this inaugural national year. We've, we've been working closely with Halebury at, uh, here in Melbourne for uh, the years before. We found for that particular program, we just had 50-50. Didn't even have to try. It was just 50-50 enrollments 
in terms of uh, male-female split. And I've always wondered about why it was so easy in that case, so hard in the other environments. By the time you get to university, of course, the, the split is already there in the physical sciences. And there's a, essentially a, a, a scissor diagram where every single stage of advancement and seniority that the fraction of women just, just precipitously declines. That is a longer pipeline issue. There's many, many issues there. But that very first starting point, and I think it was because we offered students the chance to design an experiment that interested them. The topic, the nature of it was entirely guided by them. We ended up launching teeth into space to explore dental decay and microgravity. I've a wonderful idea. I would never have thought of it, but the students did, and that's what we've done. Uh, there's been any number of other missions since, but I think it was the, the ability to have them pick the topic, pick the subject, the experiment that meant that whatever bias I might apply as the educator was missing. And, and hence, I wasn't causing these young women to not be excited by this, this potential. I, th I think if you want to ha have any instruction, just follow the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Those 17 wonderful targets the UN has jointly encapsulated, they motivate all people. And in particular, we see a lot of women going into those kinds of activities because they matter. They're not the whiz-bang science necessarily, but they are deeply meaningful projects. And that seems to be something that resonates equally. Yeah, sounds like self sounds like self determination, doesn't it, Adriana? Well, it does. It does. And I was just going to say uh, to, to support your opening statement in response to Phil's question about three three white men answering that question. Perhaps we should just ask them mm -hmm. about why. <laughs> and and that's the first step, I believe. They've got to have a seat at the table. In the absence of that, we're just guessing, really. Your experience in this field, the field of science, the field of space exploration, has allowed you to step into the profoundness that logic is kind of only the beginning of wisdom, you know, and, and it's not the end. And you've been able to beautifully articulate to our audience today that uh, Alan Duffy, professor, astronomer, and the list goes on, is still a, a continuous learner and unlearner, someone who continues to step into this, this profound space of, of wonder and awe and the aha of the discovery. Those moments in a classroom for a young person are quite profound. That they're the moments that solidify to them in many ways who they could aspire to be. Can you share with us a little bit around what's most needed to help young people today to lead lives that are well-lived and purposeful? Everyone needs foundational skills. I think everyone needs to have a sense of belonging. There's safety and hence you can feel empowered to risk when you know that you're not alone. I've spoken about this in terms of education and problem-based learning and problems that really are problems that need to be addressed, that are multidisciplinary, that allow people to see the, the completeness of knowledge in the sense that they're artificial labels we apply, the silos of a physics degree, biology, art, are just that, just abstract terms. That once you make clear to a student that they have autonomy, authority to go out and to, to wonder, and that they won't be penalized for asking questions of the world and seeking answers, I think they'll find their own purpose. Yeah, there's a powerful piece of permission in all of that, you know, and, and um, holding the space for them to step into, I think, is, mm. is part of our responsibility, you know, uh, as the adults in their lives in, in supporting them. But, but I love the fact that, that so much of your response there is about them ultimately uh, becoming the authors of, the, of their own story, which is a huge empowerment piece uh, in that. My final question to you is this. 
I was very fortunate, and I've shared this with all our guests throughout this series, that uh, in, in 2010, I did some volunteer work in Guatemala City. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that city, but it's one of the kind of um, uh, murder capitals of the world. Mm. And it was very fascinating as an educator to be in, in a space working with young people where so much of their self-preservation and future rested in the hands of criminals mm. uh, and people who, who set up shop directly opposite schools as a recruiting ground, you know, to take these people in very young and, 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 to, and to give them a sense of community, to give them a sense of a tribe, but then, of course, for their own corrupt ideals. One particular school that I was, I was supporting in the city was a Marist school, a Catholic-based school from, from prep to year nine. And um, I was chatting with a group of boys and girls and they were in their children's play, play area. And these were younger children in the, in, the, in, the, in the kind of children's playground. And engraved on the side of, of the playground uh, in Spanish was this translated, that everything we do in life has an echo in eternity. So my question to you, Alan, what legacy do you want to leave behind? It's funny you say that. That was that, that sense of a lasting contribution, however small, is what I do in science. That is the driver behind my, my efforts. My research is, is, is trivial next to the giants, next to the greats. But every advance, no matter how small, is an advance and the body of work builds and humanity advances. And that is something that I feel great sense of solace and, and comfort that no matter how small my contribution, I have helped in this species-wide effort to know our world, our universe, our, ourselves better. That's my contribution. Wow. Thank you, Thank you so much, Alan, for coming and sharing your thoughts on your life and its intersection with the lives of others on this planet and beyond. It's been a real privilege today to have you as a guest on The Game Changers. I know our listeners are going to love this conversation. Good luck with the work Thank that you. you are doing, both at Swinburne and beyond, to help us understand more about our universe, which in turn might help us more understand about more about our world, which might help us more understand more about each other and ourselves, and then work out how we connect them all together. Thank you. We can, but hope. Thank you so much, Joyce. It's been a really fun chat. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.